Welcome back to the Women Who Roar podcast. Today, I'm interviewing a special guest, Sarah Gonzalez, but you might know her better as Sarah Lewis. In 2018, her story of breaking free from her engagement to a sociopath and the ensuing quest for truth that challenged everything she had known to be true about her fiancé went viral on the Something Was Wrong podcast. Today, Sarah hosts her own podcast, the Space and Purpose podcast, which ranked among one of Apple's most popular podcasts just weeks after release. In her podcast, a recovered, happily married, and soon-to-be mother Sarah interviews other women who have escaped abusive relationships. Think true crime meets dating podcasts. In today's podcast, Sarah and I discuss patterns of control common to toxic relationships and how they played out in Sarah's past relationship. We cover patterns like financial control, something you will hear me refer to on this podcast as godlighting or using religious principles to subject you into a position of abuse, turning you against your family, and the rush toward owning or near you. We also talk about learning to trust your intuition again and the things that were so different about Sarah's relationship with her now husband that she felt comfortable marrying him. You're not going to want to miss it. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited about our conversation. Thanks. Me too. I've been looking forward to it. I have been binge listening the podcast you were featured on and it was like such a good learning experience for me because, you know, there's patterns of abuse that show up in pretty much every emotionally abusive relationship, regardless of what the mental health status of your, your partner is. And so there were just these themes that I realized, wow, I mean, even five years later, I can't believe how unhealthy my own relationship was, you know, things I didn't take seriously. So can you just, I guess we'll jump in by having you just tell me a little bit more about your toxic relationship history. Yeah, well, it definitely didn't, you know, it sure didn't present like a toxic relationship. In fall of 2017, I was kind of casually dating here and there, but I wasn't looking necessarily, you know, for anything serious or quick. But I met a guy via a dating app called Hinge. And he was absolutely incredible. Like we did move quickly, but it was a whirlwind because everything was so perfect. And we went deep really fast. He met my family. I met friends of his. He showered me with love and gifts and made me feel like the absolute center of his world. And he had never encountered a creature like me. I'm pretty sure he used phrases like that. Mm. So that we had so much in common and so many boxes were checked above and beyond what I thought, you know, I have high standards for a partner and I had been waiting a long time, but he went above and beyond. It just blew my mind. And he won a lot of my friends over and family. And so after only dating maybe around three or four months, we got engaged and then started planning our wedding. And the wedding was planned for only three or four months later. And eight days before the wedding without knowing I, I had not been given warnings up until that point. My parents sat me down after my bachelorette party, actually, and seriously requested that I postpone my wedding. So that's kind of when everything came crashing down because I, I knew that there were some misunderstandings with my parents and him, but I had no idea the extent. So that's the quick snapshot of, you know, kind of the bird's eye view of everything of what happened. Yeah, well, already in that, I think there's things that now that I'm a healthier woman and I'm having conversations with lots of women about their toxic relationship history. I mean, I think you mentioned a couple red flags, like he was perfect. <laughs> I feel like perfect is always a red flag now. Once it, it was not when you are naive, I've been there, right? But then once you've been around the block, you're like, oh, wow, perfection is a red flag. And the second thing you mentioned was him showering you with the love and gifts, the kind of love bombing thing. But as I was, you know, learning more about your story, there were a few patterns that seemed to happen in every toxic relationship that I definitely kind of grabbed onto in your story, just because I have heard these in every interview I've done so far. So I'm going to list them out and then I kind of want to jump into them one at a time. And I'm sure more parts of your story will come out as we talk about that. So those things would be financial control, God lighting, which I'll explain that later. I talk about it in other interviews also claiming you as their possession before you're married and picking at your nuclear family or support system. So the one I'm going to start with is financial control. And that, and the reason I want to start with that is because it seems to show up early in a lot of relationships. That's definitely something that showed up in my relationship with my ex that I write about in my book. So I'm just curious, 
Can you talk to me about your experience with your partner controlling you through finances and how that kind of positioned you where he wanted you? So very early on, I often forget about this part, but it's funny to think back because I think it was within maybe 30 days-ish of us getting serious, which was within maybe a few days. It just moved so quickly. He actually opened up a separate bank account, so he said, and gave me a card that was attached to it. And I think he was depositing around like $200 a month into it. And even at this time, as I was just overwhelmed and really excited, I did feel a little odd about it. And I was kind of uncomfortable about accepting that. And I didn't spend it. I just had the card. And I I remember I, I hadn't encountered anything like that. And I just thought, well, maybe this is something we all show how we care about people in different ways. I have an aunt that can't say I love you, but she'll hand us cash every Christmas. That's, you know, that's her love language. So he would get me every time we would go out to eat or he would prepare a meal or take me anywhere. It was extremely expensive. It was always high end everything. And he would shower me with gifts. If he found out my earbuds weren't working anymore or I needed a set of headphones, one day he showed up with AirPods when they were brand new and super expensive or some Ray-Ban sunglasses or Patagonia sweaters. So hundreds of dollars at the drop of a hat. And I definitely pushed back. I definitely made comments. I didn't want to insult him, but I wanted to slow things down. I I felt a little bit uncomfortable with all of that. And he just kind of laughed casually, which really diffused my concerns because he just seemed like, okay, you can, you do whatever you want, but have you never let someone care about you before? This is, if this is the way that I want to show love and I'm a grown ass man, I can decide what I spend and what I don't. So he kind of put me in a position where I would have felt like a brat if I had continued to say no. And looking back, I don't think there would have been anything wrong with me just saying, I appreciate that, but no, thank you. You are, you know, a grown man, but I'm also a grown woman and it happens to make me uncomfortable. So I hope that you can respect that. You know, looking back, I had no idea. So where this shifted later was after we got engaged, there would be these little flippant comments, mostly through a friend of his that had been texting me since the beginning of our relationship or close to the beginning. And she would say that he had been making comments about being really financially strapped ever since meeting me. I guess he had, according to her, he had made these comments to her husband because they were best friends. And he was stressed about money. Our wedding was coming up. He kind of felt like a bankroll for our wedding was feeling a little excluded from the planning process. And of course, this devastated me. I didn't intend for him to feel that way at all. And I was frustrated because I felt I'd pushed back with all the spending. But every time I would make a comment, he would laugh at me. So eventually I just went quiet and I thought this is the way he wants to live. So I would let him make the food or buy things or, you know, do that. Later on, he said he tried to say that the reason he was broke was because of me. And that I never knew it, but he was living paycheck to paycheck for months in a row. And that I didn't care that sometimes he would drop two to four grand on, quote, those weekends we would spend together. And I, at that point, I just laughed because I knew very clearly what was said and what wasn't said. And I knew he was turning it on me. So it, it, it didn't become a massive issue in our relationship because things, you know, burned out so quickly. But it was definitely a factor. <laughs> Well, it's a very subtle and genius way of manipulation because I think that shows up a lot in unhealthy relationship is the showering with gifts is like a classic love bombing tactic. And it comes across, it can come across as really romantic. And the, the way that he responded to your concern about that, I think is a genius, a horrible manipulative way. And that like, oh, poor you, like you're just so naive. You don't even know that this is how other people love it chips away at your confidence. And I think that is a really key behavior in toxic relationships. They're looking to dismantle you as a person so that they can control you. And a lot of times they're attracted to successful and dynamic people. And then they systematically dismantle you so that they can control that. And so I think the way that he went about that is really interesting because you you just said yourself, the result was you went quiet. And then he's in a position of control when you go quiet. So I think that's a pattern that happens a lot. And a lot of times it can go unnoticed. So I know in my own relationship, he would say, you're not going to be able to make money as a doctor. And so you're going to be dependent on me. And it was just this very clear progression of he has financial control. And so he controls me. So I do think that's it's an interesting and it's an important piece. But then later he, he can use that as a he can weaponize it against you. You know, he's blaming you for why he is financially strapped and all these things. 
So it's an, it's a really interesting tool. And he, he and I know other people as well, they go about it in such a subtle way that they they really do make it feel like our our own responses are our own and our thoughts are our own without having to clearly state, you know, this or that. It's it's a very subtle tactic. So he he never said anything outright. It was all my own thoughts of all doubting my own perception. He wouldn't say, you know, you're wrong. He would just go, oh, well, that's not the way I or my friends or my family or everybody that I know operates. So I would think, well, I, I can't argue that. I don't know his friends or family. And he would just say, I don't know. I mean, your community is kind of small, but maybe it's just different. Yeah. So then I would walk away thinking, huh, my community is small. There's just enough truth, mm-hmm. just enough, you know, that I would, he would leave gaps and then my mind would fill them in. So I wouldn't hold the him responsible for the self-deprecating thoughts that I was having. It was all my own to me. Well, the other thing I think that's interesting about all that is I feel like a lot of times, I actually think the perpetrator, for lack of a better word, in emotionally abusive relationships, I think a lot of times they actually think that gifts are expressing love because they don't know how to connect. I think in your story, there's some talk about sociopaths and how that shows up in relationship. This is a very sociopathic quality, but you can also see it in narcissists where they don't know how to connect, so they observe how humans who do know how to connect, connect, and they want to imitate that. And I think gifts can be a piece of that. I think in some weird part of their brain that we don't understand, because that's not how like a, a healthy connecting brain works, they think that that is love, but then it also meets a need for them of giving them control later. So That's so true. So that was an interesting piece to me. Okay, so I mentioned this term Godlighting earlier, and this is the term that I use when people use God or scriptures or theology to gaslight you and perpetuate their abuse of you. And that this is something that's really important for me to discuss because I just think women need to realize it's not true. And I see this a lot. Like women will stay in these horribly toxic dynamics because they think that's what would make God happy. And I just think it really needs to be very clear that that is not true. That's not what God wants for you. And so a lot of that happened in your relationship. I'd love for you to share more about that and share about like, how did that affect your view of God? How did that affect your view of yourself? How did you heal from that? He started off, I know there's a lot of different ways that people connect with God. And when it comes to denominations, you know, I think there's validity to every single one. I happen to lean more charismatic only because of personal experiences that I've had. It's funny because you use this later. There's our experience and then there's our head knowledge. And those combined together are extremely powerful. And when we first met, he not only agreed with or validated, but he championed a lot of the things that I shared with him because I know not everyone has had dreams like I've had that have come true and just spiritual experiences with God that you can line up in scripture. They are consistent with his character and his behavior. But later on, and a lot of this was after we were engaged, which I hear that pattern a lot in people is once someone feels, I think that they have a little bit more control, there's a little bit more commitment, things tend to shift. But he started off very supportive. But what, and that's that's part of what, he was in seminary. I don't remember if he was still in seminary for if he had finished, but he was extremely knowledgeable about scripture. So very early on, I was a little bit intimidated by his thorough knowledge. Like I I have a lot of scripture in my head, but I can't always recite the reference right off. You know, he can shoot off page, line, you know, knows exactly where it is. He's just got this index in his brain. So immediately I was put in a position of deferring to him a lot if I couldn't remember something correctly. And if he would say, Something like, I don't know if that's biblical. I would just kind of look at him and he could fire off why exactly. And I I wasn't versed enough to then counter that. He had enough sense and enough logic that I would just kind of shelve it. And by then I was already so emotionally attached to him. And he had me convinced that he had my best interest in heart that I thought, okay, maybe there is something to this and maybe I can stand to benefit by paying attention to it. So I did. And I did eventually start to question experiences I had had because he would just kind of look over. I would let him in a little bit more on something and he would go, he would validate it. He'd say, you know, what did he say? The devil is a good liar. So maybe you did experience that. That doesn't mean it was God. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because he validated that I'd experienced something. But now I have to figure out, was it true? You know, was it of God or was it of the enemy? 
and it slowly pulled out brick by brick, you know, things that had been foundational for me. And he'd go, can you find, I don't know where that's been in the Bible, but he wouldn't push it. He would just make little comments and then he'd kind of move on. And he did this little flippant head thing where he'd go, he'd kind of look over me and be like, I don't know where that's in the Bible. And then he'd just kind of move on and it would leave me reeling. So months go by of this. And over time, I stopped praying because his whole thing was God is sovereign. God already has everything planned out. You can pray, but it's more of just an appeal. And he stripped the power of my words from me. He stripped my awareness of why God wants us to pray, the partnership that he wants. My ex would just pull little pieces of truth while leaving out the context. And by then I had learned to defer to him so much because I thought he was so smart and so knowledgeable that even if I questioned something deep in my mind, I wouldn't dig into it. I wouldn't ask him and I wouldn't counter it because I knew that I would not be able to handle the conversation coming back at me, if that made sense. He would be so over my head that I would just have nowhere to go. Yeah. Conversation wise. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that illustrates, I think when you're in an emotionally unhealthy relationship, they slowly pick at who you are and undermine the foundations of who you are. And part of the way that they do that is by preying on your naivety, if, if whether it's there or not, but they make you feel like you don't know anything. That was a theme that would come up a lot with my ex would be, well, you are just so small-minded because you grew up in this little sheltered community. And I'm I'm not small-minded. I've been to, you know, I went to an Ivy League school for my undergrad, so I've been surrounded by a diversity of perspectives. I consider myself a mystical Christian, so I have, I, I just think I have a broader view than a lot of people who consider themselves Christians. And so I'm not, but he, he made me feel that way. And it slowly chipped away at at what I believed. And I really wanted to kind of zoom it or like zoom in on this a little bit because I thought it was interesting that your ex-fiance told you your experiences of witnessing God work in these more spiritual ways like dreams or whatever was wrong because my ex did that too. And it's funny to me that they wouldn't say something like, I disagree. Like, I feel like if you don't agree with something in a normal, healthy relationship, that's what you say. But instead, they kind of position themselves as these ultimate authorities to us to tell us what's right and wrong about God. Even when our own eyeballs see differently, I remember having this conversation with my ex where I was like, well, you can say this guy's purple, but if I go outside and see that it's blue every day, I, that's what I'm going to believe, you know? I mean, he was just telling me, you know, you're, you're wrong. You don't know enough. And so, like, I remember questioning everything. And I remember one weekend Googling, like, was Jesus real, you know? Just at that point of though my whole reality was just shifting around me. And I want to bring out this nuance because I think making this question, making this question God is one way that they position themselves in our lives to define our realities and become our ultimate realities. Because if they tell us who God is and what's right or wrong about God, then they virtually become God to us. And I think that's something important that women need to realize. Yeah. And the way he would get in with that with me a lot is very funny. You made the sky comment because I said the exact same thing later. It was like he he could look you dead in the eye and say the sky is pink and have full confidence in what he's saying, even though it's crazy. Yeah. So he used to say he would champ or preach this line all the time. And that was that, you know, the boy lays his life down so that the girl goes free. He he believed in a what is a, a complementarian relationship. So his interpretation of that was that women should not be in a position of leadership, especially when it, they can be in leadership over women and children. And they can teach. He used to really elevate these female Bible teachers at a church that he respected in, in Texas, but they couldn't be, they couldn't have the title of pastor and they couldn't be a worship pastor. Women could lead worship, but they needed to be leading alongside a man because that's the biblical structure of things. Well, I, you know, I did my own research later. Contextually, completely incorrect very different theology than this but i'm gonna do a whole video on theology of this in the library so this is a massive massive rabbit hole i yeah i could go on and on but he (laughs) the reason that he got me to not question him was that he positioned himself as my champion it was how can i make sure that you flourish in this role not in something that god hasn't there's a reason god has not meant this for you and it's because that's not best for you so this is best for you as your future husband. How can I lay myself down to make sure that you are the best you can be? And I didn't always take him at his word. I did push back on the worship aspect because I knew that I knew that I knew 
I had not sought out a, a position of worship leader back in the day in college. I majored in music. I didn't seek it out. It was something that God had literally pushed me into and multiple yeah. people had confirmed. So that was something that I never really did. I just thought we'd figure it out over yeah. time. And yeah. he, I, he didn't tell me until I was deep in emotionally and we were far into our engagement. Actually, I don't think I really knew his full stance until maybe a month before our wedding that he revealed that not only, you know, did he disagree, he didn't think women should be leading at all. I, I didn't know that. Almost. I had such a similar experience. I was one of the reasons I really love your story is when I listen, I feel so many parallels. Like my ex was in, he was a theology major when I met him. We had this big like fight about whether, because I was going to be sh like sharing in church. I did. I went to this house church and he thought, well, I shouldn't be teaching because I was a woman, you know, similar things like that. But, you know, one thing you said brings up such an important piece is that he, he did it as your champion. And I think that is another way that they kind of mind meld us is they make us feel like we are these weaklings in need. Us, they, they need to, they need, we need them to grow us up and we're just lost without them. And they need to show us the world. And it's only through their guidance that we learn. I mean, I can't believe I fell for this crap, but you know, they, they make you feel like that. And I think women actually sometimes being more emotionally intelligent we think well maybe there's things i need to take responsibility for and uh, and you before you know it you know this is one of the reasons i call my book losing you finding me is you know i found myself at the end of things like where did myself go i don't have a i don't have confidence anymore i don't have my own opinions i don't have you know fill in the blank but that is such a toxic insidious way that they do it they take control because it's so stealth it is and that's when you say you know why do we fall for this crap we don't really not at the beginning not until you know not until there's that chemical you know connection and that attraction there and we're already seeing and thinking and feeling differently right. that we realize the reality it, they don't always present like that it's true okay so another thing that i want to talk about about kind of chipping away at who you are, chipping away on the foundation of your reality would be the way that they pick apart the nuclear family, or for some people, it might just be your support system. So that was another theme that I had with my ex a lot. There was a story that you told that I really resonated with about, for me, it was, I think I, I was living in San Diego by myself. And I, so I had my location turned on because my mom liked to know kind of where I was just because I was a single woman living in a city far away from family. And his apartment complex had a similar name to like a bad area of San Diego. My mom didn't know I was visiting him one time, saw that his apartment complex name called me thinking I'm in this bad area of San Diego just to see if I was okay. And he said, well, you know, this is, that was controlling of them. I don't want them knowing where you are. Or, you know, he would do different things like, I don't want you talking to this counselor. So I would talk to somebody else. Well, they think too much like you. I don't want you talking to this person. And pretty soon my world's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So I wanted you to share about your experience with that and just how that impacted you, Be how that kind of impacted you and how that placed you in a vulnerable position to be preyed upon by him. So what makes my particular story just extra layered and complicated is that he did a lot of this, most of it through a friend. I didn't see him as the bad guy for a lot of things because there was this close friend of his, this couple I mentioned earlier, the wife's name was Kimmy, husband's name was Brian, so it'll make it easier. Good friends of his that went way back and the wife, Kimmy, would ask me questions because she was learning a lot about me and my family, not only through me, but through conversations that my ex was having with her husband. And she would say things like, your parents sound a lot like mine growing up. They're very protective and, you know, God bless them, but they're a little overbearing. You guys are a little codependent. Your world is really small. They're really over-involved in your relationship with your fiance. I'm sorry, but they're not marrying him. You are. So why are you taking this concern? Why are they trying to ask questions? My parents had started to ask a lot of questions about my fiance's behavior because he had started ghosting them. They didn't have high expectations of his how often he would communicate with them, but he had set a, a precedent a pattern and it shifted overnight. So it was the black and white switch to them that was really concerning. So they when they weren't hearing from him and just casually reached out and then continued not hear from him, 
they started to reach out to me. Well, that was irritating because in my mind, I had reasons for why he was busy. I didn't think they should be contacting him that much. So it started to raise a lot of tension. And his, I was processing with his friend a little bit because she knew just the right time to ask, like, hey, is everything OK? You've been on my heart. I'm praying for you. So she would say, oh, girl, that's not biblical at all. That's really controlling behavior on your parents' part. I know they love you and they want the best for you, but the way they're going about this is really, really damaging and unhealthy and toxic. So I would get that affirmation and think, yeah, you know, so I would end up in arguments on the phone with my mom, which never happened. We've always gotten along, I think, since I was like in third grade. And I'd find myself in the middle and say, this is a problem with him. Or Kimmy, the friend, would make comments about my roommates. I was best friends with one of my roommates. She was, we were really close. And she would say, you know, I mean, you guys are all cute and sweet and everything, but I don't know, your fiance has friends that are your age that like have careers and they're saving for retirement. They're not just rooming it up, you know, in a downtown city going to Europe every time they get a new paycheck and it, which wasn't true, but this is the way she made it sound. And she would be nice enough, but just be like, yeah, he's a little confused, I think, just because he runs in different circles, quote, and circles that operate at a different level. And you guys have had it really easy all of this time. You've just kind of been paycheck to paycheck and having fun and going out, and, you know, doing your thing. There was just enough truth because I was a little bit insecure about the fact that I wasn't I didn't have major financial plans for my future yet. I mean, I was fine. I was fully independent, but I didn't have a 401k. I didn't have, you know, saving much of a saving, which is very common. So I would kind of start to roll my eyes a little bit at my roommates and think, you know, I enjoy them. But yeah, we are just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And that's embarrassing. And yeah, my parents mean well, but I've just grown up in this tiny bubble. So I started to kind of push them out and see people differently. And oh, come to find out what made everything just massively twisted is the day after. It turns out the big thing that was wrong with everything was that these friends that I had been texting. But you never met in person, by the way. I feel like I should clarify that. Yes, I did not meet them in person. I received gifts in the mail from them um, that I that had very obviously been shipped from overseas. That was not faked. I had received letters that were kind of funky, but, and I had seen a screenshot of my fiance Skyping them. They were not on the screen, but their newly adopted daughter was. So I could see my fiance on there. I could see her, all that. They had helped me assemble a birthday surprise for him. They had gotten me contacts. And so they had been a big part of just those few months that we were together. And the night of my bachelorette party, my parents asked me to postpone. They have no idea why, but they feel sick. My mom had been tormented at night. She'd been up with nightmares, could not figure out why. And they did not want to ask me to postpone, but they felt like they had no choice because they just knew something was off. And up until that point, I had no idea that family members like cousins, aunts and uncles had had interactions with him that were extremely negative, that they thought he was a jerk. And I had absolutely no idea. So the next day, I found out that those friends, Kimmy and Brian, weren't even real. That the entire eight and a half or so months that we'd been together, starting about two weeks in, two weeks after we met, he had created, and I didn't get this confirmed until a month later, a month after we broke up. He had been creating, he created their phone numbers. He created their whole story, their kids, the backstory, where they lived. He had ordered something from Africa to be mailed to me, which turns out it's actually from the nonprofit that the real Kimmy and Brian run there's because I had seen tons of photos of this couple but it was a couple that he had he had worked with the guy years ago in San Francisco so that was the big twist so the the layer that complicates everything is that he wasn't guilty of a lot of the triangulation and the, the gaslighting and everything it was Kimmy yeah so I had to separate that it took me maybe six six to eight months later for me to continue connecting all of those dots to remove Kimmy and to put him in every one of those spaces, if that makes sense. Every yeah. hurtful comment, every, you know, yeah, every dart that she'd thrown my way, I had to put that on him over the next few months. Well, there's just such this like sick dichotomy in that in general. One, creating fake people, like that's just to do your dirty work. Like <laughs> decadence, you know, it's like something you see in a movie like how what is going on in his head that that happened and the the level of detail and like thought and layers of it is just insane but i think there's this dichotomy in general in toxic relationships where it's they start out by treating you like you can do no wrong you're perfect you're on a pedestal 
everything about them is involved in just making you happy and worshiping the ground that you walk on. And then the closer you get to getting married, they start dropping these kind of left field controlling bombs of, you know, suddenly their their view had flipped. Same thing happened to me like when I got back together with my ex. We were seven years on and off. And it was, okay, we're, we're finally on the same page. We have these shared goals. And then 180 reversal before we're supposed to be engaged. So there's this this weird dichotomy in that. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring out that pattern is because I want to basically say and clarify that one of the goals for emotional abusers in relationship, they want to possess you and they want to own you. And so one of the ways that they do that is through isolating you, cutting you off from everybody that you trust, everybody who could speak, hey, something's wrong into your life because one, that that isolates you from yourself. So you suddenly, you don't have perspective, you don't have identity, you don't have a sense of this is what I want or don't want. And so that gives them more power and control that helps them own you. And it also cuts you off from anybody who could help you. And that is a big physical abuse red flag. So I think I just think it's something really important that I want to discuss. As far as the family piece goes, you, so you had a sister who was overprotective. I'm using air quotes. And I had that as well. One of my sisters said to me, I am not attending your wedding with him. I will not be there. And I had a girlfriend who was kind of on the same timeline as me getting out of a toxic relationship. And same thing. She had a sister who was kind of calling out her fiance very early on. And I think we see that a lot. Like the the archetype that we see is there's one person in the family who's maybe the more outspoken one. And then the person being abused is the more gracious person. And they're calling out the unhealthy person early on. And the gracious person is saying, well, you just, you don't understand the perpetrator. And then it creates this relational tension where suddenly you're having issues with someone in your family that were never there before. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because I think that is another theme that I've been seeing kind of pop up recurrently in my conversations with women. Yeah, actually, something I've started telling people in conversations of, you know, what to look for is just pay attention to your relationships. Is there tension that wasn't there before? Pay attention. My, I think after a while with my sister, because she has always just kind of been like, a, she'll just say, you know, a lot of time it's her humor. She'll say whatever she wants, mostly for shock factor. And she'll say the things that we think, but, you know, wouldn't actually say. And she had never, anybody I dated, she never liked them for me. And she's very picky with people. Doesn't really care about their feelings. It's more just like, "Mm, if I'm not into you, I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to give you the time of day. And she did not, I don't think she started off liking him, but I thought that she changed her mind around Christmas. And I found out later she was drunk when she made the social media post that, showed her blessing. (laughs) Didn't actually mean it. So in my mind, I took that as counting. But at the time, she was kind of the big hurdle, you know, for everyone to get there. So it was sort of this big deal. And he would try to buddy up to her. He did it to both her and my brother and a couple of other people where he would, what was the word? He called him buddy or pal or bud. And she would say later, don't call me bud. I I don't know if she said that to his face, but he did try to like kind of saddle up and get in there. And I don't remember her necessarily saying anything to me directly. I think it was my mom telling me Emily's feelings on things. And I just thought she just she's never liked anybody. So what's it? You know, she's and she's just not going to understand. I don't necessarily remember if it was my ex or if it was Kimmy (laughs) that brought up. I guess it's just all him now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. (laughs) That brought up my family's response. And it was just it was kind of more of the like, oh, what what is the way they put it? It was kind of like, why does Emily get this pedestal when she's never even dated because she hadn't. So why why are her opinions given so much? It was like Emily kind of has to get a stick out of her butt, for lack of a better way to put it, because who gave her this authority and where did she think she got it? And I remember thinking, yeah, she's never even dated. Why is it a big deal? You know, I thought, oh, she, she just doesn't understand. She's five years younger than me. So she's the youngest. She's inexperienced. She has head knowledge, but no, you know, actual experience. But the reality is she's a pretty decent judge of character and she didn't like she didn't like feeling he was forcing himself on her. And in interactions in the kitchen later, she would tell me he made her extremely uncomfortable because he would lean forward on our kitchen island with his elbows on the counter and drill her with his eyes. And just she said like she could she didn't even feel comfortable looking up at him because I remember thinking, why are you being so rude? 
because yeah. he would try to engage with her and she just wouldn't give him anything. She wouldn't even look at him. And it wasn't until later that she told me, I, I didn't feel like I could. I was so uncomfortable because this stare was so intense. It was almost like there was an unspoken challenge where he was glaring her down and being like, look at me, look at me. Like, I am going to be your best friend. It was weird. Very predatorial. Like, if you think about the animal kingdom, I mean, like, stalking their prey, it's weird. Kind of. It, it does bring up that, that, like, they always know everything. No matter who you ask, there's always a reason why someone else giving input doesn't know. You know, okay, so she doesn't, you can't trust her input because she's never dated. Well, dating is just a relationship. I mean, it's a different kind of relationship, but you don't have to have dated to have some sense on what's healthy in relationship or not. And you can apply that all across the board of our relationship. It was like, okay, that mentor doesn't know because they have this touch. So we get another one. Well, now this one doesn't know because of this. This one doesn't know because of this. You know, and the irony about it is, I don't know if this was true for you, but I remember looking back, I think, well, you didn't have any accountability. At least I was trying, you know, and I was, but they are the ultimate authority in all things. Exactly. It's rules, you know, rules for thee and not for me kind of thing. But I, I, looking back, I think what Emily was uncomfortable with that she was sensing, but not able to articulate was that her boundaries were being crossed. And that's a very subtle thing that now looking back, he absolutely did that with multiple people because he would try to take control of a situation and establish a friendship right away so that he could be over people or be kind of a go-to. And he wasn't respecting her personal space. It was, you are going to love me. And it was the staring and the constant conversation and then the getting you know, the drinks out and taking the picture together and all that stuff. She was kind of railroaded into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what love bombing is. That is them not respecting your boundaries. They're setting a precedent for a relationship. They're not respecting your ability to do things on your own, but they spin it in this way that seems romantic. And if you don't receive this, you're just naive about how people love. So, you know, it's something to watch out for. I want to transition a little bit into talking about instincts because I think that's really important. We sometimes lose our instincts and or we ignore them, I think, in toxic relationships. And then we have to find them again. So one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was listening to your story is that you said you kept, you have to keep, t- keep telling yourself to calm down. Nobody is lying to me. And I thought that was really interesting because in general, when people are starting a new relationship, they're not usually going in with a perspective. Okay, this person is lying to me and I have to make sure they're not. We usually go in trusting until there's a suspicion. So where did that belief come from in you that someone is maybe lying to me? Good question. Other than I could just think, you know, God himself and, you know, my intuition and discernment because I had never been in a relationship where someone had lied to me. So it wasn't that I had past experiences, at least that I was aware of. But I remember multiple times getting these almost out of body, out of my own mind, instinctual thoughts that would just like hit my gut. And it would be something like, no, that didn't that didn't happen. And right before we like declared our love for each other and things really, you know, took off and at a whole different speed, I kind of had a moment of truth. I was I hit a wall because I started realizing I I don't think I'm emotionally where he's at. This train is going at 500 miles an hour and I want it to. I want to be there. And on paper, this is everything I want. I want my feelings to catch up. I want to feel the butterflies. I want to feel everything but something in me is still fighting it. I feel like I am at a crossroads and I have a decision I need to make, which should never, now looking back, that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. In a relationship, you know, things should just progress naturally. But this, I felt like I had to do some catching up. And I reached out to a couple of friends and just said, hey, be praying for me. I feel like I'm like in over my head. I'm overwhelmed. And I just, I need wisdom moving forward. And they're like, oh, happy to support you in this. You know, happy to do that. But looking back, something in my gut was screaming at me that my feelings were off. They weren't matching his, but I ignored it because on paper, again, it looked like everything that I had wanted. And so I knew if I keep going, my feelings will catch up because this is the scenario that I want, if that makes sense. And what's wild is I I kind of forgot about this, but there was actually a moment now that I've mentioned, you know, who Kimmy really was. Yeah. We had, I think it was shortly after we got engaged. So we were still like, things were good. Things weren't weird. It wasn't when we were arguing a lot or, you know, things weren't following, falling apart. But I remember still where we were standing in my room 
and he was looking down at his phone standing in front of me and I was facing him, I think like folding clothes or something. And this thought hit my brain as if it was just like dropped in from out of nowhere. And it was, he's Kimmy. What if he is Kimmy? And I, my own response like internally was to go, (laughs) I have the craziest imagination of anybody I know. I'm crazy. Yeah. And I just wrote it off. But later, you know, we were at the gym and I texted Kimmy and I looked over at him and I didn't see him react. And I got a text from her and I looked and I didn't see him on his phone. Huh. So I'm like, ah, well, I, I learned later you can schedule. If you use certain apps, you can schedule texts to go out at certain times. So you don't need to be on your phone. But those are there are looking back. There were many examples where the truth was being screamed in my gut, but I wasn't. I was feeling it, but I wasn't seeing it. And so I didn't learn how to marry those two. And I didn't know what to dig, what rocks to turn over, if that makes sense. Like I, I, I felt like there was something off, but I felt like I would look crazy if I started to question things because looking around, everything was fine. And his friends were corroborating his stories. I was hearing just enough. Yeah. So-called friends. Well, actually some real friends, just enough. They're a very, very small handful that I know now he never sees them hardly at all. He's only made tiny, you know, connections with them. And they are people, I saw this phrase somewhere, like he makes sure to keep yes people very close to him. So the only people that I met were people that worshiped him. Literally one guy said, I have a man crushed on your boyfriend. He, and he really did admire him to like a weird degree. Those are the only people that he chose to introduce me yeah. to. So they dropped just enough names and answered just enough things that Everything else that wasn't adding up in my head, I just shelved because I thought, okay, I've already gotten confirmation for a few things. So I I think I was too scared to look crazy because I didn't have enough physical evidence for the wild things that my gut was telling. So I was going to ask you how you explained those, you know, how you explained those gut feelings away. And if you feel like there was something in you that kind of broke down that a lot that led to you not trusting your intuition as much as you maybe would have in the past. But it sounds like it wasn't even necessarily that you were explaining things away. It was just that you were afraid of looking crazy. I think I was afraid of rocking the boat a little bit because I had this idea that these people were kind of out of my league. And when I say these people, I mean my fiance and Brian and Kimmy. (laughs) (laughs) The triangle, the trifecta of evil out there. And I was afraid that if I did make a stand or kind of raise a stink in question, that they would shoot it down so effectively that the rug would completely be ripped out from under me and I would never trust myself again. I would feel like literally just an idiot. What do you think you know kind of thing? And he had effectively, we had started having some conversations where he wouldn't understand what I was saying, which I'd never really encountered. I'd always been told that I'm a pretty clear communicator, but he would go, whoa, whoa, like, why are you coming at me? so hard and like calm down this is really like you've I feel like you're trying to silence me kind of thing and I'd go oh my gosh there was just enough truth there because I remember when my sister and I were younger we did not get along at all and we would argue she would claim that I was using this juju on her and she would just give up she'd be like you're just going to keep talking me in circles you should be a lawyer you know on and on and I felt terrible so that was this insecurity in me that I never wanted someone to feel shut down or steamrolled I didn't even verbalize that to him, but somehow he picked up on it and he used to tell me, whoa, whoa, honey, babe, you tend to, if if someone doesn't see your point of view, you steamroll them and hold them down until they say uncle and, you know, acquiesce to your perspective. Yeah. And I was so thrown off. So I started to just doubt. I thought, you know what? Maybe the way that I've come across all these years has been completely different from what I thought. Hmm. Interesting. So how did you learn to trust your instincts again? Because that is, I, I went through that too. It's something that's really challenging to heal from. So how, how did you learn to reconnect with intuition? A lot of it was going back and confirming. A, a lot of it was going back in the relationship in my mind, hunting things down, hunting for the truth. And I know a lot of people do that. A lot of people disagree with doing that. They don't think it's healthy. For me, I had to go back to almost every time that I had felt something funky and remind myself or figure out what was real so that I could match those two together and go, okay, that's what that felt like. And that's why I felt it, if that makes sense. Now, moving forward, though, with meeting new people or the prospect of dating or even just, I had never had this happen before where someone would say something to me or I'd hear something. And now immediately I'm going, yeah, we'll see. You know, because I just, I had been so easily lied to 
yeah. with a straight face and eye contact that I hardly believed anybody. So for a while, it was hard. On one hand, I thought, wow, my gut is amazing. But on the other hand, I thought, how could I have also ignored it so effectively? So what if my gut does scream at me next time and I ignore it again, you know, if it's something different. But the further away I got from that experience, the more healthy interactions I had, the more I had to remind myself that there are people out there that I've always trusted that are still trustworthy. So I, I couldn't jump to the extreme of, OK, everybody's like this and my gut will always be wrong. Because the reality was my gut was right. I was the one who made the choice to ignore it. So now I know what not to ignore. Well, I feel like that's one of the reasons why the God lighting is so deadly, because, you know, I think a lot of times God does speak through intuition and through nuance and subtlety. And if you are having that picked apart, like you can't trust that, you can't trust that, then of course you're going to stop trusting your intuition as well. And then they weaponize something that has that's important to you, at least in this case, is important to you, to to subjugate you. So I th- I think that going back to that point, it, I think it plays into the dismantling of our intuition as well. But you, so from what I understand, because you're remarried now, and from what I understand, it was kind of a quicker meeting and getting married, you know, than quicker, a relatively quicker. So how did you, how was that not scary to you? What was that experience like? How did you get to a place where you felt like you could could trust like a faster timeline and also trust a significant other? But I think the faster timeline is a really interesting piece of it. Yeah. And I, I have had Thankfully, not a lot, but some people, you know, that are familiar with my past reach out and be like, wow, don't you think you move quickly in general? (laughs) They weren't there for this. This was so different. There was much more community involvement. I will say I had already known who he was for quite a while. I had heard about him constantly from a friend that was interested to the point where I was like, would you please just do something about this so I can stop hearing about this guy? What? A real friend. It wasn't a plan. (laughs) This is a real life, really close, longtime friend. I really loved. And her brother, who's very picky, was very respectful of this guy, really had known him for a while. I knew he was very established in a church. He had longstanding patterns. And one thing that was missing with my ex was that I was taking his word for a lot of things Mm -hmm. and the word of people that didn't do life with him necessarily. And with Kirk, my husband, People were coming out of the woodwork, people that I knew were real. I had already met, you know, various places. They would go, you're seeing Kirk. He's one of the good ones. Mm. And so I, there was so much like, and I don't think this is normal either, but I think God just knew what my heart needed. There was so much outside confirmation from people that I already knew, I already respected. I had known a long time that were like, oh my gosh, you found a treasure. And that was the, the feeling I had from the beginning. I also, what was different was that he was so respectful of my space, he didn't ever make any assumptions about my time, about what I wanted, about, he actually had the impression that I was busy and I had like a line of suitors out the door. And so he was just kind of like, just very unassuming. And I think my ex had been such kind of a bull in a china shop. I get what I want because I am you know, everything everyone wants and I'm going to, you're going to love me. It was kind of like the way he approached people. And he would tell people, we're best friends. I like you. To this day, if I hear someone say, I like you, we're going to be friends. I'm like, ooh, you let me decide that. You know, it just makes me uncomfortable. I know not everyone means it the way my ex did, but I, he had time with my family, even without me. He actually, to sum it up, very early on in our relationship, the reason, the whole reason we actually made things official, we had been talking for a year online before okay. I was comfortable meeting him in person. So by then I knew who he was. I'd been hearing about him the year before that. So actually two years I'd heard all about him and got to know him. And then the only reason I decided to go on, agreed to go on a date was because I had posted online that I was moving to Tennessee. I had absolutely no idea that he had family in Tennessee. And they had been trying to get him to move out there for the last seven years. And he had been saying no. Well, then he found out he was going to be an uncle. So without having any idea that I had decided to move, he made the decision to move. So when I posted about it, he commented and I thought, hold up. Like I, there had been something different about him anyway. So we started talking. I went on a trip to Nashville to scout out and figure out where I was going to live, pick out neighborhoods. I also went to the city that he was going to be moving to, which was a few hours away. And I ended up meeting his parents for lunch on Easter Sunday. It sounds crazy, but they offered. They were they thought Kirk's never talked this seriously about a girl, you know, ever. We're going to be nearby. 
if he wants us to hang out with her, we'll get to know her. And I thought, you know, he trusts his parents enough and he's hands off enough that he'll, you know, let this happen. And I really appreciated it. We spent the afternoon talking and they were wonderful people, normal, real, not too good to be true. Just what you see is what you get kind of thing. And then he got me back a couple of weeks later. He was in Mexico for a wedding. My parents were in Mexico on vacation. So they partied without me for a day. There was just all these little things, you know, that I needed to see. And he never once tried to take me away from family or friends. He was very, very much like I, he even said, I think it's important that we get as much time with your family as possible before we make this move because we ended up actually driving across the country together. So by the time we had gone through that, went through him figuring out how to sell his house, moving me out, figuring out how to move across the country in 110 degree weather with my dog that had just undergone surgery. By the time we got engaged, we had been through so much together and there was so much water under that bridge that I felt completely at peace with getting engaged in December because there had been a year of hearing about him, a year of talking to him, and then a year of dating him in person, if that made sense. So people only, the timeline looks like we met you know, it's got a fit, became official in April, got engaged in December and got married in February. But that's not the full story, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the reason I asked that question is I think quick timelines can be dangerous, but quick timelines can also be really good for some people. And so it's nice to hear it. I think you're very unique in that you've had one of each, a really healthy quick timeline and really unhealthy quick timeline. And so it, it's neat to hear the contrast between the two. Speaking of contrasts, my last kind of topic that I want to chat on with you was, I think one thing that's really interesting about being in an engagement or a marriage or leading up to a relationship with somebody who is toxic, narcissist, sociopath, just unhealthy in relationship, whatever, fill in your, your adjective there, is that a lot of times we actually really love them. And so it's weird to look back and think, oh, I loved that person. So what was that like to love somebody like that? And then how is what is it like to love somebody different, love somebody healthier? It's funny because I think a lot of people, they're still interacting with that person in person after realizing what they who they really are while still having to, what do you call it, like just or not justify it, like come to terms with the fact that they love him. Whereas in my experience, I never saw him again. He left the state. And now I have an entirely new perception of his identity. So I felt like I was in love with someone that I was grieving because they no longer existed. I had never known the real him. And I went through phases of feeling really, really sad for him and thinking he's so broken. There must be so much self-hatred deep down that he truly can't face his own life, his own identity. So he has to lie about literally everything, everything to do with his past, his job, his skills, his friends. What a miserable existence he really must have, you know, to maintain all of this. And then it was, I switched to, well, he doesn't even feel anything. He's turned it off so much that everyone to him is just a means to an end. It's just an ego feed, you know, if that makes sense. I felt like I loved someone who didn't really exist. It was the best side of him if he was whole, because he could go really deep and he could have emotional conversations, but I don't know how much of it was manufactured and learned and, you know, reflected or mirrored versus what he really truly thought and there was one moment when he sent me the big confession text where he told me Kimmy and Brian were real and confessed a bunch of other things I did not know addictions and habits and thing medications he was on that I was completely unaware of I cared like the compassionate side of me cared about that extremely broken person that was in there and then I had to go through this phase of anger where it was just like how dare you you're not even human I think you've truly turned off the soul in you and you're a robot now. Yeah. And how is that different from like loving Kirk, your relationship now? I recognize him as never once as he presented as, you know, a god or someone that's on a pedestal. It's been very much like I see the flaws. I've seen him lose his temper. I've seen, you know, all of that. And I can love all of it because I know that he is pure in heart, if that makes sense, like truly. And he's not using me for anything. Like he loves me so much that he would want me to do and have whatever I want, even if it's at his expense, if that makes sense. And I think there is just so much more of a whole, like with my ex, there could be no fault. And I was scared to disagree with him for th- on things now looking back. So where I'm seeing the contrast with Kirk is it's taken a long time. He's had to tell me over and over, it's okay if you disagree with me. I don't, it's not going to threaten me or you know, if you don't want to do this today or if you don't want to go somewhere, 
I don't want to go if you don't want to go. It's perfectly fine. And I would think, no, I, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he'd go, you don't need to be. You know, you can feel things or you can not like something and we don't have to do it. Or I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a scattered answer, but both people are imperfect. But one, <laughs> it was untouchable sort of thing. And it, and I had to kind of make myself smaller to make room for them kind of. And there were certain things that were off topic and I was on eggshells. And the other is just they are who they are. And we want each other to be happy and be the best versions of ourselves. Well, I think one of the contrasts that I'm thinking of on it, your ex-fiance said that laying his life down for you looked like pointing out your flaws and how sheltered you were and bringing you up into his idea of what a woman should be. And your husband, his idea of laying his life down for you is giving up things that cost him or have the potential to cost him so that you can actually take up more space with your ex-fiance, laying his, laying his life down was about you taking up less space. But what it really looks like when a man lays his life down for a woman is that he is allowing her to grow and develop into more of herself. Whereas in toxic relationships, the language is stolen to make a woman less of who she really is. That's really profound. And thinking about it, my ex's approach was very negative. It was, well, we need to remove this. We need to remove this. Well, this is too much and this is wrong, you know, kind of thing. Whereas Kirk, it's not like that. It's more just like, wow, you're really good at this. You're really good at this. I see, or he would say, you know, I think you're really good with your friends when you talk about this. And I think, you know, that this is something that we could focus in on or he'll let me have the office because we both share this office. He's got a desk. He's got all this stuff in here. But he gets out and makes room for me to have these conversations about an ex. Well, you know, he knows that he's my world now. So even that says a lot that I don't have to explain anything to him. I don't have to justify. He doesn't question me. I don't have to get his approval for anything because he knows, you know, he knows I love him. He knows that he's my priority and that this is something that's very important. And he makes room for it. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, and I think when you really love somebody... You don't expose their flaws, you protect your flaws. So it's interesting. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'm going to wrap it up because I don't want it to go on too long. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Did you ever think you would date again? Was it hard for you to open yourself to the possibility of even considering somebody new? I absolutely said many times that if I never get married, I'll be perfectly happy. And I still believe that. I, I had managed to, I knew, and I would kind of, it was a little annoying, but I had been told a few times, you can you be totally healed. There are just areas of healing that are even more special or can go even deeper in the context of a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship. And I would think, well, that's nice, but I don't, you know, if it doesn't happen, that's fine. And I still believe that, but it didn't happen to be that way for me. I did end up, you know, but it took me four years. I think we broke. Yeah. So 2018, I didn't go on another date until the fall of 2020 and realized why well, I'm so not ready. And then 2021 Oh, gosh, was it? No, it was 2019 that I went on the date. 2021 I, or 2020, I went on another date and still was just like there were red flags everywhere in that one as well. So I saw it really clearly. It was like, Ugh. and then that's when I started talking to Kirk. I think that year I'm getting all like my timelines all mixed yeah, up. But I, yeah. yes, I definitely said for a while, I'm good. I even said I wouldn't do if I even was open to dating again, I would definitely not do online dating. Because that's how I had met my ex, which what's hysterical is I met Kirk on the exact same app that I met my ex on. Oh, funny. <laughs> so way to redeem that too, I guess. You met Kirk on the dating app after hearing about him, all that. all those that's, that's actually the way we connected. Yeah, because he didn't know who I was. We didn't have a connection, like personally. I just knew him through a whole bunch of friends, but he didn't know who I was yet. And then I saw him on the app and I actually said no. Because I thought my friend was still interested in him. I, I That was a whole like, backstory. He saw me, said yes, and it put him back in my queue. Have a little conversation won't hurt, you know. And here you are. Exactly. Here we are. It worked out. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. You have an amazing story. We just kind of hit some of the highlights of it. So I know you're sharing more of your story in a lot of different channels. So can you tell people where to find you? Yeah, it's all hopefully going to stay the same name. So my Instagram handle is space and purpose, which is also the title of my podcast that's coming out in January 2023. I'll be working on a book as well, which I definitely want to later pick your brain on that. Yeah. I was so excited to see that you've gone through all of that because I know it takes a lot to get to that point. So really excited to check that out. But Space and Purpose, and that is also my email. So I am taking stories and talking to people with similar experiences, but also people in the professional realm, 
whether that's therapists, social workers, your trauma specialists, doctors, and hopefully having conversations with them on my podcast as well to get questions answered and get their experience and knowledge. So space and purpose on Instagram and website. Everyone, I will drop the links below so you can check that out. And I'm going to also link to Something Was Wrong podcast, which is a podcast where Sarah Sarah tells her story in much more detail. There's like multiple episodes, but it's definitely a binge-worthy listen. So I'll drop all those. And thank you so much again for sharing your time with us. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm on a mission to help protect women from toxic relationships by supporting them and recognizing the signs. I also want to help women heal from toxic relationships by letting them know they are not alone. The stories and conversations I share on this platform and in my book, Losing You, Finding Me, are designed to do just that. I'd love for you to help spread this mission by subscribing to this podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with a friend. Also consider picking up a copy of Losing You, Finding Me for a deep dive into healing from trauma and toxic relationships. Until next week.